When I first came to Princeton, I considered myself a foreign student. Even the students from India, when they first heard me start arguing with them, were not sure that I was speaking English. Just one year earlier, I had driven my 1965 Buick LeSabre, which is almost the size of a tank, into downtown Manhattan, where I was starting law school. I double parked the car. This car had a cardboard insert in the rear window, like a pirate's patch. Its drive shaft was held up with a coat hanger, and even the cabbies in New York would make room when I said I was going to switch lanes. So I double parked, I went into a delicatessen and ordered a roast beef sandwich, and I thought, you know, this is new for me, I'm in the big city. And the guy at the counter, he says, hey, Sonny, stop right there. Don't say another word. And he went back into the back. He says, hey, Pete, gather all the employees and come out front. you got to hear this. <laughs> and so they all came out, and he said, now order again. And I ordered the roast beef sandwich. <clears throat> and he said, that's the damnedest accent I've ever heard. He says, you must be from the deep, deep south. And I said, well, yes. Although in North Carolina, we think the Deep South is Central America. (laughs) And he says, well, you must be from the Deep South. Let me just ask you, are you from Delaware? (laughs) So it's all a question of perspective uh, and where you come from. And, you know, I've I've come to accept that I speak kind of slowly. I was given a speech in Maine maybe three years ago. And about midway through, I looked at the people on the front row, and I noticed the the whole group had their brows furrowed. And I looked at them, I said, well, do, do you not understand me? Do I need to slow down so you can hear me? And they stood up in unison and said, oh, please, God, don't speak any slower than you do already. My organization, Self-Help, started with a $77 bake sale to raise capital to lend to minority small businesses. Self-Help has grown to be almost $2 billion in assets now. We have 43 branches in California, Chicago, and North Carolina. And we have made about $7 billion of loans to poor people and to businesses and nonprofits that traditional banks said were too risky to deserve a loan. My friends at the time we started lending, my banker friend said, Martin, you're an absolute fool. You can't make loans that we're not able to make. And I told them, I said, I learned one thing in growing up, and some of you have heard this story, and others probably haven't, but my father was this very right-wing Jesse Helms Republican. My mother had no political inclinations, but told her children that she had one rule in life about voting and that was to find out early how my father would vote and vote the opposite in every single election. So if I seem somewhat confused, I come by it uh, genetically. So my father moved his family. He wanted them all, his four sons, to learn how to work like he did growing up on a farm. So he moved to this area on the south side of Greensboro, but I don't think he realized that the community we moved to was 90 9% black. 
And so I grew up with children in communities playing basketball who were all different from me, but I learned something really unique. I learned their families, and I made this great bet 25, 30 years ago that has now made me look visionary. I made a bet on African-American single mothers and that if they had a chance to own a home, they would pay back any loan that was given to them on fair terms. And I will tell you that, yes, my genius is that I had faith in people that poor people were better borrowers than rich people were. And over 30 years, they have proven me right, and I tend to tell people over and over when I think I'm right. <laughs> During that early years of self-help, we learned this statistic, which we probably should have already known, but for me, it was the most socially unacceptable statistic in a great nation. We learned that African-American and Latino families had one-tenth the wealth that white families had in their household, and that 60% of all minority families have zero or negative cash wealth, so that when you're talking about trying to buy a home and you need a large down payment, we have excluded the largest majority of these groups of people. And when we learn that 65% of family wealth in all different ethnic groups in the United States consists of equity in one's home, we decided that we had to focus on home ownership, even though we had started self-help primarily to facilitate the financing and startup of small businesses. Over those first 10 years, self-help made over 1,000 home loans to single mothers with children. And at the end of those 11 years, I sometimes ask an audience, how much percentage do you think our losses were at the end of 11 years? And people will guess 1%, 3%, 5%, some 20%. But the answer was not one single penny of loss, not a single dollar of loss in 11 years of lending to poor people that everyone else had lost faith in. But I wasn't a genius. I had eaten dinners at the kitchen table of the mothers of my friends growing up, and I knew that they would pay us back if it was humanly possible, and they did. By the end of those first 10 years, some of the families that we had made home loans to came back to us and asked to refinance their homes in order to provide funds to start a small business or to send their children to college. For me, this is the legacy of asset ownership for families that haven't had a chance to own assets in the past. And I learned two things. The first is that income gives a family the freedom to make short-term choices. But assets and wealth give a family the choice of making long-term investments. The second thing is despite the ridiculous rhetoric in Washington that you hear nowadays, and there's lots of it, I sometimes call it the fact-free zone of America, <laughs> homeownership is still the single best tool for breaking the cycle of poverty. Not because it's an asset, but because it changes the psychology of a family. It stabilizes the family, it changes what they think is possible, and it changes the neighborhoods that they live in.
I remember this story of a meeting we had where various members of Self-Help Credit Union came and told their story, and this one woman stood up. She said, I'd like to tell my story. I'm 55 years old. I was the child of two alcoholic parents, and I worked from the time I turned 14 until now every single day of my life in one or two full-time jobs, but I was never able to own a home. And with a self-help loan, I owned my first home, and when I took the keys from the closing home with me, I sat in my living room in the middle of winter. It was not this cold, but it was very cold. And she said, I sat in the living room. I didn't even sleep in my bedroom the first night in that new house. I sat there and watched the thermostat, which had a little red light that turned on and off, on and off, whenever the heat turned on. And for me, that thermostat represented something great. I had had my children, and the only heat we had when they were growing up was the kitchen oven. I knew it wasn't safe. I knew that at any time, that oven that I used to heat our house could burn down and kill my children. And so for me, having a thermostat, which meant that my grandchildren can come and stay with me, and I know for certain that they will wake up the next morning safe, is a thing of magic, and it means the world to me. I'm now going to shift into my amateur professor role, show you some data slides, and then end with a couple of lessons that I feel like I've learned over the last 30 years. So we talked about the entities, Self-Help Credit Union, Self-Help Ventures Fund. The Center for Responsible Lending is an advocacy organization where when we, by, by 1998, self-help had become known as the largest homeownership lender in America for low-income families, which is pretty shocking to me. But what we found was that there was an entire industry of lenders that were then called subprime that were taking advantage of these families, but it wasn't clear in 1998 that these lenders were pernicious and so I hired 40 lawyers and economics researchers to basically be a fact-finding analysis team to try to change uh, the lending practices in America. I hadn't chosen that. I just didn't have a choice because we found that there were companies that were looting families of the homes that we had been trying to help build. And we found one company in particular that in one year had caused more families to lose their home than self-help had been able to help buy homes in our entire history. So it basically just really made me angry. You can't tell it now, but when I was younger, I had red hair and a really hot temper. <laughs> I lost all the red hair, but the hot temper hasn't really gone anywhere productive. So I want to look at home ownership by race, uh, talk a little bit about the self-help home home loan secondary market, look at abusive subprime lending, and then opine for just a second about economic inequality in the United States and the world. This is the homeownership rate for white families in America, roughly 73% of all families. These two lines are for black and Hispanic families that 
peaked at 50% of families owning homes and through this crisis has now fallen to 42 to 43%. We have lost almost 20% of all black homeowners in America through the process of foreclosures through the subprime crisis. We have had the largest transfer of wealth away from minority families in the history of the world over the last six years. And this is a quick explanation of what the housing wealth market looks like. Over on the left side is a chart of cash savings for minority and for white families. And what you see that is shocking is that for the median family, the cash savings are two to three hundred dollars for families of color, and for white families only a thousand dollars. These are among renters only. And so if you require a large down payment or cash reserves in order to be able to buy a home, you have excluded the entire segment from ever being able to make progress. On the right-hand side, we show total wealth of renters and that it's still pretty pathetic uh, and very differentiated based on race and ethnicity in the family. This shows you a little bit, this is a hard diagram to, to understand initially, but it shows you what's at stake. On the left is a chart of what is the composition of households in the United States as of 2012. The vast majority here are white families, and down below are Asian, Hispanic, and black. The second chart shows you the projected composition of household growth from 2015 until 2025. And what you see is that 75, 78% of all growth in households in the United States will be families of color represented in these bars. So that if we don't figure this solution out, not only will communities of color suffer, but the entire country will be left behind. Okay, this was our program. Self-help started, we found this formula, we knew that it worked by having poor people become homeowners, but we were never going to be big enough to make a difference. So I just tormented the CEOs of Bank of America, Wachovia, First Union, Wells Fargo, and others, to say, I don't covet your money, what I covet is your distribution network. You have branches and loan officers in every corner of the United States. And if you will make these loans to low-income Americans, I will make you a godfather-like proposition. You get to have the credit, you get to charge a 1% fee, you get to meet your community reinvestment obligations, and I'll take all of the risk. I am so confident that the loans will be good, I'll take all of the risk. And so we set up this program that basically is a fancy way of adding the credit risk to us and bringing in capital markets investors to deliver financing to low-income Americans. And over this program, we did five to six billion dollars total um, and with a re very remarkable track record. Here, as of the date we did this report, we had 4.5 billion dollars that had been lent to 50,000 families through this program. The vast majority, 40% uh, uh, were minority, 
and 62% of the area median income was the income level of the families that qualified for home loans. Okay, this is really remarkable. The annualized return on the down payment that each family put into this program was 23%. So 23% return year after year after year on their small down payment. And what we saw, the equity change, the growth in wealth for the families that owned a very modest home as of 2014 quarter one. So we've already gone through the huge price decline, the catastrophic destruction, what I sometimes call the Hurricane Katrina that destroyed thousands of communities all across the United States, but never on the headline news each night. Those families were still $23,000 better off than they were to begin with. And here, I'll just focus on this one little line here. We did this very fancy study that the Ford Foundation paid for, that for the families who qualified for this program who had zero net worth, assets minus liabilities equals what your net worth is, they had zero. That if they became owners, by 2012, they had $38,000 in family wealth. If they stayed a renter, their wealth went to $266. Now this is shifting into the abusive predatory lending. In 2005 and for two or three years before that and for two or three years after that, this was the basic percentage breakdown on subprime lending in America. The, the percentage here is not the percentage of total subprime loans, but the percentage of total loans made to African-American families of any income level or any circumstance in the United States. So 52% of all loans made to African-Americans were loans that would blow up and cause them to lose their homes. 52%. And you do that over a number of years, you end up that 50% of all African-American families had subprime loans where the payment would jump by 30 or 40% at the beginning of the third year. No one can afford that. Latino families was a little bit lower, but still very high. The dominant marketplace that was serving communities and families of color were subprime, what are called exploding arm loans, a adjustable rate mortgage that after two years was absolutely unaffordable. And my black friends would say, well, thank goodness the largest number of families that were hit were white families, or we would have never gotten any attention at all. Even though it was only 19% of all white families, it still was the larger number. So when people state that subprime lending impacted white families worse than it did families of color, on this statistic, they're right. On this statistic, they're not right. But it basically exacted a price for the country and for really the world as a whole. This is a chart which I really uh, hate and love. We did studies starting in 2004, so before this was really recognized. And here was a mapping we did in 2006, so we haven't hit the real financial meltdown of 2007 or 2008. The orange areas are very high concentrations of minority homeowners. The lighter white colors are uh, lower concentration. <clears throat> Each blue dot represents a foreclosure 
in a 10-month period in 2006, before the crisis really hit full steam. And what we can see is that in the areas that were concentrated uh, African-American or Latino communities, these communities were utterly destroyed. If you have foreclosures, one after another, within a block, you have what they taught me at Princeton at the Woodrow Wilson School as externalities, economic externalities, spillover effects, that it destroys the house next door, not just your own house. This is my favorite chart in the world, but I'm not going to really dig into it because it's so dense and cool, but just to note that if you have any area where population growth is neither increasing nor decreasing, the real home prices revert to the mean so that over a 30-year period when home prices go up above a trend line in real time, so the value over inflation goes up, it always comes back down and almost by the same amount so that by 2007, we had looked at this beginning point in 1998-99 where the level of home prices was expanding out of control in the United States. And if people had seen and known this chart as we did, we were preaching it, we were going to have a contraction that would look much like each of these did, but it would be much, much greater and so, I must tell you, it has no good feeling to be right. Uh, as many times as I testified in the Senate and House Banking Committee saying, we are on a path that will be destructive beyond belief, I couldn't get the industry to change. This is what actually happened. So yes, we did have, this is the next several years, and I would say we've got another little bubble here that should be of concern. Inequality. Okay, this was a chart I had done some years back before Thomas Piketty did his book. And what it shows is that the top 1% of the population in the United States controlled 25%, received 25% almost, of the total national income uh, by the end of 2003. I wanted to show it, so Thomas Piketty, this is a, a chart that he had done about inequality in the world and looking at various countries, and he measured the income captured by the top 10% of families in America, and you can see that the highest peak prior to now was 1929. And you know what happened right after that, right? And then we approached it again in 2006 and seven. And I hear that the chart now has gone back to where it's the highest in the history of the world and the history of this country. So here we saw an adjustment. One of the only things that happened during the Great Depression that was positive, from my view, is that inequality became more compressed. But thus far, we have seen no indications that this Great Recession has caused any adjustment. And my final chart, this instead of looking at income or at total assets, looks at financial wealth, cash wealth, savings, stock investments, IRAs. And it's a pretty dramatic, the top 
owns 43% of the financial wealth in the United States. The bottom 80% of all families in America own 7% of the total financial wealth in America. Now, you will think that I'm being extremist and alarmist when I tell you that if we continue on this course, I believe that the future of democracy is at stake. That while in my region, when I talk about inequality, the look I get from politicians is, so what? Who cares? Or I talk about extreme poverty being corrosive. They're like, well, what's wrong with poverty? That's good. But you can't have a continuing cycle where 80% of the people at the bottom are owning such a small sliver without having social corrosion. So I want to end with two lessons that I feel like I've learned. The first is really my core belief, and that is that it is the duty and the privilege of every single person to fight for freedom and for economic justice. And I, I learned growing up as a Baptist in the South that kindness and reason are really important and that we should love our enemies, but sometimes we have to stop them first. I consider myself a really lucky person. Yes, I have had death threats over and over from the Ku Klux Klan and from drug dealers in neighborhoods that we were working to rebuild. And I have had large companies and leading legislators promise that they would destroy me personally. But I have incredible friends, an amazing family, and the privilege of working with literally thousands of families who are struggling against the odds to survive and make a better life for their children. When the 450% interest rate payday lenders who make $300 to $500 loans and charge 4 to 500% interest rate told me that they considered me their biggest enemy in the world and that they would spend $10 million not to defeat me but to destroy me personally, I had this kind of bad feeling. <laughs> and it's not the bad feeling in the way you think about the threat, but I had these words from my mother who used to say, Martin, the only truly deadly sin is pride. And as they started telling me this, I was feeling this real surge of saying, you know, my mother would not be proud of me. I am glad <laughs> that these guys hate me like they do. My mother also used to say that it's easy to be liked by everyone. All that is necessary is for a person to see nothing, say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing, and the world will love you forever. So, you know, I think being obnoxious doesn't hurt any either. And the truth is, it's, a, it's just a fact that the things that keep poor people poor have vested interests that want to keep the status quo exactly the way it is. My favorite quote from Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, is the following. He says, it is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. 
It's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. I think this is the challenge of our time, whether it's in the villages of Iraq or Libya, or in the inner cities of Los Angeles, Chicago, or Baltimore, if we turn our backs on young men aged 14 to 30 and leave them to languish in poverty and unemployment, if we leave them without purpose, without the economic means to support a spouse or to start a family, the result will be inevitable, and it will not be pretty for them or for anyone nearby. Those abandoned will find affiliation and purpose. It will be in a gang or it will be in an armed group. And violence and destruction take root when we fail to build young men with hope and purpose, when we find that we have abandoned building strong children and think that we can work simply to repair broken men. Self-help's founding belief is that it's better to build strong families and communities from the very beginning. We may commit to fixing broken neighborhoods that have been broken by poverty and despair, but if so, this is an indictment of a wealthy country and proof that the vision of social justice has not yet arrived. My second lesson learned is even more extreme than the first. I actually believe that suffering and self-sacrifice can heal the corrosion that has taken hold of our country and world. Now, I know this sounds odd. No one seeks suffering, but suffering and loss have a way of finding us whether we seek it or not. Self-sacrifice is something very different. That is an active choice that we make out of love. I have met with mothers in inner city neighborhoods who faced the random and predatory violence of unsafe communities. These mothers have told me that each night they pray for their sons. They told me that their prayer, and this is remarkable, is that their sons live long enough to go to prison. And I looked at them because I had a son roughly the same age as these mothers. And I said, that can't be your prayer for your children. And the response I got was that time can cure a prison term, but no amount of time can cure a bullet. One of my best friends is a middle-class African-American man with a Muslim name. He's six foot four, a big man, a national leader. And a few years ago, my friend got a call on a Monday morning telling him that he needed to come home, but the authorities would not tell him why. He called me and said he was driving back to his small town north of Durham. And it turned out that his 20-year-old son had been murdered that morning, presumably for $60 of cash. There was nothing that I or anyone could do for my friend other than to be there during this time of need. But being there in times of pain and suffering is what creates the bonds that make us human. It's what creates the bonds that make us civilized. It's the glue of civilization itself. Many years ago, I used to visit a family on the coast of North Carolina who was working to start a small business. The family had never had a white person come and stay with them. And so when I would go down to meet 
them and talk about the bylaws for this new business, they would put me up in their house. And it was a very cold winter. When I would arrive, they had a central kerosene, one little heater in the middle of the house, which was cranked up and was really hot. And despite having grown up in a black community, I was thinking, maybe there's something just really weird about black people and heat, because it's so hot. And after the third or fourth weekend of my going to visit this family, I finally struck up the cultural courage to say, do you think we might turn the heat down just a little bit? And of course, you know what the answer was, right? They said, thank God, we thought there was something really strange about white people and heat. About a month later, I talked to a family friend, and the family friend told me, he said, Martin, do you realize that when you came to visit, this family was unemployed, they had lost work, that they would go the entire week with no heat at all. They had so little money, so that when you came to visit on the weekends, they would be able to have kerosene for the visit, your visit. And I didn't know that. And what I realized is that when people will sacrifice for you, so many of you think about your mother or your aunt or a grandmother or someone who sacrificed everything for you to go to Princeton, to go somewhere, there's nothing you won't do for that person in return. As St. Augustine once said, we should preach the gospel wherever we go and use words only when necessary. Here was a man with moral authority who knew that being there meant much more than talking about a problem. If it takes sacrifice to lift the poor, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to house the homeless and comfort the afflicted, then so be it. And now I really will close with a statement of a vision forward. Make no mistake, economic freedom and human rights are on the march throughout the world. Women are risking their lives and their bodies in Egypt to step forward to protest oppression in public. In this country, immigrants who toil in the sun to build homes for others will, with modest immigration reform, be able to have the opportunity to buy a modest home of their own. And those who are asked to serve the sick and the bedridden in hospitals all across the land should be able to get medical care for themselves and their loved ones. And I truly believe this, that my four-year-old granddaughter will grow up to choose whom she cares to love without fear of violence and condemnation and discrimination. So if struggle is the defining characteristic of life, let's make that journey worthwhile. Let's make that struggle worthwhile. I can't tell you how grateful I am for this award. I feel like it invites me to join in Princeton's journey as Princeton basically joined in my journey 35 years ago. And with that, I will end. I thank you very, very much.